Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is going to be the uh, scripture of our passage, and that's starting in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, starting at verse 14. And we'll go to chapter 5, verse 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If you could go back in time, where would you go? Ask this question to a child, and they may say a day at the water park, or that really awesome family vacation, or that time they scored the overtime winner. Ask this to a new mom, and she might respond with, when I would sleep right through the night. A middle-ager might say, when life was simpler, less busy, and a senior might say when life was a little louder and everybody was home. How many of us would say we would stay right here? Often when we think of going back to the past, it's with thoughts of the good old days, days of peace and comfort and security. Why would I stay here when I could go back to there? As we've been hearing, the Jewish Christians who received the letter to Hebrews were considering this very question. Being a Christian was a tough slog. Persecution was increasing, security decreasing, suffering a reality, martyrdom a distinct possibility. Why should I stay here with Jesus when I could go back to peace and comfort and security? Why? Should I stay? The author of Hebrews is going to answer that very question by going back in time. 
He'll go back in time with his readers to the time of the Jewish sacrificial system. And he didn't have to go back far at all. This was a system that the readers had left, but was still in practice at the time. Peace, comfort, and security would have been right there, right within their reach. Why should they stay with Christ where it's dangerous? Let's pray. Father and our God, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would open it to us. Cause our hearts and minds uh, to hear and to see what you have prepared for us. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why should the Jewish Christians stay with Christ? Why should we stay with Christ? The author is going to indulge this question by indeed going back. The first four verses of Hebrews 5 provide for us a snapshot of the system the believers had left, and more specifically, a picture of the one who led that system, the high priest. And the author is going to explore three compartments of the high priest position. The role of the high priest, the character of the high priest, and the appointment of the high priest. We have the role of the high priest very simply defined in chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Very simply, the high priest must be a man, represent man to God, and offer gifts and sacrifices for the sins of man. One of the times, perhaps the most notable time that this would happen, that the high priest would offer sacrifice for sin, was each year on the Day of Atonement. He would pass through the curtain, separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies. There he would sprinkle the blood of the animal sacrifice on the mercy seat for the atonement of his sins and the sins of God's people. As the author would later write, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. The sacrifices for sin were offered by a man representing the rest of men to God. Second, we have the character of the high priest. Verses 2 and 3 say he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. The high priest should have enough humility to acknowledge his own weaknesses and sin. There should be no log or plank in his eye. If he wasn't aware, he would certainly have that reminder each time that he would offer a sacrifice for own sins, just as he would have to for the people. It was this awareness that would allow him to be gentle with the ignorant and those who are wandering or going astray. So our author has presented the role of the high priest, that he is the mediator between God and man. The character of the high priest, that he be humble and self-aware and gentle. Finally, the appointment of the high priest. Verse 4, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. It is God who appointed the high priest, God who selected the representative of man to himself, the person who will offer gifts and sacrifices for the sins of men. This was to be done according to the law and respecting the lineage of Aaron. Aaron, a Levite, you'll recall, 
served as the original high priest and his descendants after him. God appointed by law and by lineage those who would serve in the position of high priest. And if we just call a timeout for a minute, and we try to step into the sandals of the Jewish Christians, we can see the draw a little bit, can't we? We can sympathize with the allure, the temptation to go back in the middle of trouble. You may have felt a closeness with the high priest in the sense that you could see him, touch him. You would have the regular, visible reminder that your sins were being paid for. This was also a tradition and a very big tradition dating back hundreds and hundreds of years. A tradition that survived the wilderness and war, exile and foreign conquest. And of course, there is the familiarity, the system you were likely born in and knew and were raised in. There's comfortability in that. The suffering and the persecution on the horizon could be turned into a mirage if they were to just go back to what they knew, back to peace and comfort and security. Why should they stay? The author is going to flip that question on its head. Why should they stay? Why would they go? Jesus is greater. The writer says so in chapter 4, verse 14, since we have a great high priest. Jesus is greater in his appointment, he is greater in his character, and he is greater in his role. Commentators point out that making this argument to the Hebrew readers that Jesus is a high priest, that was not a small task. When you look at Jesus' lineage, the places he ministered, the lack of ceremony, the lack of wardrobe, even his cleansing of the temple, they would have been hard-pressed to picture Jesus as a high priest. But as we will see, Jesus is not just a high priest. He is our great high priest. Everything you would want and need is right here in Christ. Why would you go? The writer will use the chiastic literary device to make his point, kind of like a reflection in a mirror. Establish some ideas and then build on them in the reverse order. Like saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. The old system was described using A, his role, B, his character, and then C, his appointment. Now we're going to flip that order and look first at Jesus' appointment. Jesus is greater in his appointment to the position of high priest. Verses 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my God, to, or sorry, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The author wants us to understand a few things about Jesus. First, Christ also is not self-appointed. He is appointed by God. Second, though the high priest needed to be a man, Jesus isn't just a man. He is the Son of God. You are my son, the author quotes in verse 5. Not the son of Aaron, not the son of Levi, the son of God, God in the flesh. Today I have begotten you, 
a reference to Jesus' resurrection, as Paul says in Acts 13, where Christ was irrefutably affirmed as the Son of God. And because the Son of God has been resurrected from the dead and now sits at the Father's right hand, he is in the perfect position to be our, high great, our great high priest. Perfect position in that he is both fully God and fully man. Perfect position in that he is seated right next to the Father. Which brings us to our second point, Jesus is appointed to a greater and higher priestly office. Not an office according to the law, nor an office according to his lineage, but an office according to the order of Melchizedek. And you can read about Melchizedek on your own in Genesis 14. We'll hear more about him later in Hebrews as well. But long story short, Melchizedek is presented as being eternal. Not that he actually was eternal, but he has no recorded genealogy, and so he's pictured this way. The high priest of men would die and would eventually need to be replaced. Not so with Jesus. He is eternal. Melchizedek is presented as both priest and king, a dual office. His title is the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. And his name means righteousness. Having been affirmed in his sonship through the resurrection from the dead, Jesus, fully God and fully man, was appointed to an eternal kingly priesthood to which all other priesthoods are subservient. He faithfully intercedes for us at the Father's right hand, and he is our king of peace and our source of righteousness. Why would you go? Next, Jesus is greater in his character. The high priest was a person who was supposed to be gentle with the wandering because he remembered his own weakness. In fact, he was beset with weakness, the passage says. Beset has this idea of kind of hanging around or being encircled by, kind of like that cloud of dust and debris that follows around Pigpen in the peanuts. Jesus, being fully man, knows this weakness too. The writer says in verse 8, although he was a son, that is, although he is divine, the son of God, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Not that Jesus needed to be taught anything, but rather that he acquired the full experience of human weakness by living as a human being. Some of you may have an ESV Bible, a study Bible, and a helpful footnote would put it this way. He especially came to know firsthand what it cost to maintain obedience in the midst of suffering. And this was an ongoing experience throughout his life. Verse 7 says, in the days of his flesh meaning throughout his earthly life, Jesus, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. The Gospels picture Jesus this way, don't they? Praying earnestly and constantly in the weakness of humanity. But in the opening verses of our passage this morning, we are reminded that Jesus is not just a high priest who can relate to our weaknesses, although he certainly is that, but he is the one who overcame the results of our weaknesses. Chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. 
Jesus would have felt the fullest application of pressure, that temptation to sin. In basketball, they would call this a full-court press. This idea of aggressive pressure from the defense on the offense, regardless of where the offense is on the court, following them and pursuing them relentlessly. If we're tempted to give a snarky or a passive-aggressive response to somebody, we might cave to that temptation when it reaches 4 out of 10 on the pressure meter, 5 out of 10 on the temptation scale, maybe a 7 if you're having a really good day. Despite all of his interactions with the crowds and the scribes and his disciples and the Pharisees and no doubt the Romans, eventually a 10 out of 10 on that pressure meter, Jesus remained without sin. Those who knew him closely attested to this. Peter wrote, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. John wrote, in him there is no sin. And of course, Matthew details for us how Jesus was tempted by Satan himself to misuse his deity in order to bypass the Father's will and exert his will in order to realize what was due him, his own people and his own rule. Why would you go? 10 out of 10 on the temptation scale, yet without sin. And because of this, because he is without sin, Jesus, unlike the other high priest, did not need to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. Which brings us to his role. Jesus is greater in his appointment, in his character, and Jesus is greater in his role as high priest. We'll remember that the high priest needed to be a man who represented mankind to God, passing through the curtain and into the Holy of Holies to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. We know Jesus is a man. We know that God sent forth his son, born of a woman. We know that despite the full court press of temptation, he is without sin. And because of these things, he does not require a gift or sacrifice for himself. Neither does he need to offer repeated gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. He does not need to do this continuously because he is the sacrifice for sin. Present tense. And being made perfect, in verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The sacrifice for sin is no longer offered continuously. Instead, it is applied continuously. Sacrifice for sin is no longer offered continuously. It is applied continuously. Jesus became the eternal source of salvation now and always, and there is no other. He is the great high priest, perfect, offering himself as the sacrifice. And when he offers himself, he does not do so passing through a curtain into God's presence, but through the heavens, sky, space, and into the dwelling place of God. Verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Why would you go? Look at what we have in Christ. He overcame the full court press of temptation and is without sin. 
He understands what we face and what we feel and what we think. He offered not the blood of an animal, but he offered himself as the perfect and final sacrifice for sins ever applicable. He is affirmed in his sonship through the resurrection from the dead. He literally passed through the heavens and is seated at God's right hand. The Father has appointed him to be our eternal high priest. He is our righteousness and our king of peace. Why would you go? We know that Christians are under persecution in different parts of the world. Like the Jewish believers of that day, we too can see suffering on the horizon, can't we? Tough slogging ahead. Some have already abandoned ship. And perhaps you've experienced this firsthand. Uh, Many of us know someone who has turned back. We know that the trials ahead are not a mirage. People are becoming more and more hostile, aren't they, right in front of our eyes? The National Post recently reported that over a quarter of our fellow countrymen think it would be appropriate to send the unvaccinated to jail for something that's not even a crime for a few days. We would view this as enmity, a desire of the flesh, as Paul calls it in Galatians 5. Enmity, feeling or being actively opposed or even hostile to someone or something. Then another poll recently found that nearly a quarter of Americans, about the same amount, think it's okay to use violence against the government. And even one in ten said that that would be okay right now, that that's justified. Fits of anger, according to Paul. Strife. These are the prevailing attitudes of our culture and believers in some cases towards each other and towards authority. It's not difficult to see on our horizon how these hostilities will be turned against those who walk with Christ and who practice holiness. Those who, according to 2 Thessalonians, stand firm and hold to the traditions they were taught. These hostilities are already turning, as we know, because the world does not believe the truth, but has pleasure in unrighteousness. We expect more suffering and more rejection in our future. Not really for our freedoms, those come and go over time, but much, much more so for the sake of Christ, for those who have believed the truth. Most of us here are Gentiles. We've not left Judaism for Christianity, though perhaps some have come from other traditions or religions where ceremony and ritual present a feeling of stability. What might we be tempted to go back to? Where is the allure of peace and comfort and security? We know the default religion of man's heart is idolatry, the worship of a God that we fashion in our own image, and more often than not, that image is ourselves, the God of self-will and self-rule. This is the God Satan tempted Jesus with. Self-will and self-rule, the temptation to bypass the Father's will in favor of his own will. 
And just like us, Jesus also faced the question, why should I stay? He too was tempted with a full court press to bail out. We're reminded of this in verse 7, which says, Jesus offered up prayer and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Where does our mind go to with this passage? To the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Faced with suffering on the horizon, immense suffering, the just wrath of God for the sins of the world, Jesus was also tempted to go back. But what did he pray? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Hebrews adds, he was heard because of his reverence. Because Jesus was not self-willed, despite his weakness, did not cave to the temptation, but offered himself as the sacrifice for sin, he has now passed through the heavens and is in the perfect position to represent our weaknesses and our needs to the Father when we too are faced with similar temptations. We are invited to do two things in response. Number one, hold fast our confession. Our passage starts in verse 14 today, hold fast our confession or what we know and believe to be true. Hold fast to our confession because we know that suffering will in fact come. In verse 7 it says, Jesus prayed to him who was able to save him from death And some commentators say a better translation is to actually save out of death. A reflection of the hope of the resurrection that he had, and that of course we who are in Christ have. Hold fast to our confession because the ministry of Christ is far greater than our religious past. While the near term may present struggles and require endurance, we are assured of the everlasting peace comfort and security that is ours in Christ. Hold fast to our confession because Christ is our confession. He is our answer to the Father in the face of our own sins. Number two, we're invited to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is no longer just the high priest who can enter the Holy of Holies, but God's people, through the work of Christ, can come with worship, can come with requests, and can do so in confidence. And when we come, it is no longer just a mercy seat that we access, but a throne of grace, the source of blessing from God, despite our own individual unworthiness, Here we find both mercy and grace in our time of need, or translated, in the nick of time. Grace and mercy as we need it. If we were to go back in time, we might be able to identify a time and a place where we were tempted to bail out. Where we might have asked ourselves the question, why should I stay When I was a teenager, I was intimidated by what's on the horizon, and I asked myself a question like this. I remember our family got some cheesy videos from the 70s about the end times out of the church library, 
And they, they were uh, cheesy, but at the same time, they scared the socks off of me. I had nightmares about martyrdom until I came to the realization, a, a couple of realizations actually, one, that the eternal peace of Christ far, far outweighs any momentary trial I may be called to. Two, just like the disciple said in John 6, where else will I go? Jesus and Jesus only has the words of eternal life. And three, I was reminded that we have a faithful high priest who hears and knows and understands and is at the ready with both grace and mercy in our time of need. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we know that what's in front of us right now, the trials in the world, that they will just intensify. And we know that those arrows will be turned, about, turned to those who confess you and to those who know you. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he knows this too. Lord, he went through such a great trial on our behalf, one that we look to, one that we'll remember here at the table. We thank you that he knows our weakness and, Lord, that he uh, followed through in obedience and went to the cross to bear our sin. We thank you that when we come to you, we know that, he, that you hear our prayer because of his work and, Lord, that he faithfully intercedes for us. And so, Lord, encourage our heart with these truths and bless us now as we remember the work of Christ at your table. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.